This message first aired on the radio on July 12, 2004. We come today to the end of the Epistle of the Ephesians. We're in the sixth chapter, and uh, it's possible that we'll finish it today. And as we look at the Ephesians chapter 6, we are continuing in the thought, of, and the, it's a great thought, of Ephesians 5, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And it's interesting to me that the epistle of the Ephesians comes down to uh, this uh, most important issue, the central issue in the universe. It's the issue of authority. And, of course, the Word of God needs to be taught with authority. And the Word of God needs to be expressed on the earth and in the heavens with authority. One of the most remarkable aspects of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the thing that uh, impressed those that heard him, as they said, is he speaks with one who has authority and not as the scribes. Well, we have to understand how the scribes talked and how they spoke and uh, to understand the difference that the Lord Jesus made as he spoke with authority. He was one under authority, and he spoke with authority. And the scribes would not speak that way. The, spi the scribes would not speak as if they had any authority whatsoever, but they would quote this rabbi, that rabbi, and the other rabbi. And today we have very many scribes uh, trying to... Uh, are saying that they're teaching the Word of God, and they quote this man, that man, and the other man, and then you're just supposed to weigh the value of men. I find it one of the most obnoxious statements to hear people dis discussing the truth of the Word of God, and some fellow will come in and say, well, there's good men on both sides of the issue. What difference does that make? Uh, first of all, why callest them thou good? There's just one who is good. And secondly, we don't receive the word of God as, as if it were the teachings of men or the doctrines of men. We receive it as it is the word of God. And so did the noble Bereans who searched the word of God to see if these things are true. Well, that has to do with submission, submission to proper authority. And that's uh, in the grand scheme of God, this great mystery of the church, which is his body, God is trying to demonstrate in the heavenly places uh, his manifold wisdom. And the way he does that is to show uh, people who have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son and who are submissive to the will of God, who carry out the will of God obediently as uh, free men, uh, carrying out the word of God obediently uh, as, a, as an example and a manifestation of the wisdom of God. Well, what is God's wisdom that he's showing? It's God's wisdom in placing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a man, who is a man, placing the Lord Jesus Christ above the angels and saying, let all the angels worship him and the new humanity that is to follow him. So God is demonstrating to principalities and power his wisdom in placing a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, over the new creation. And therefore the church, which is his body, is also to demonstrate submission to the will of God as the Lord Jesus Christ did. An, an, first, a knowledge of the word of God, uh, will of God, according to the word of God, uh, being full of the knowledge of his will, and then secondly, being submissive to the will of God. And so that... Uh, is the expression that God wants, and he wants it to the heavenly places, whether you can see it or not uh, with the eyes of your, uh, of, your, of your own body. That's one thing. But the eyes of our understanding have been opened, and we know that this is what God is doing with the church, which is his body. We learned it here in the Epistle of the Ephesians. Now, what it involves in practice 
is submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, and we trust that our discussion of that has been fruitful in our, uh, in your thoughts and in your study, and you've gone like a Berean and seen that this is true, that submitting ourselves one to another does not mean that all of us submit to each one of us, but that God has an order of submission. And the first in that order was, you may recall, wives submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then it doesn't say to the husbands, submit to the wife, but husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, and and what we see there is that the husband's love of the wife, that self-sacrificing love, has to do with submitting to the Word of God and the will of God. And so a wife is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord, and a man uh, is supposed to submit to the will of God and the Word of God as the Lord did unto the self-sacrificed saving uh, of his wife. And this, of course, is the way that you lead that ship of your home, brother, is that you submit yourself to the Word of God. Now we come to the sixth chapter where we looked at children, obey your parents in the Lord, and we see that's a stronger word. That is the word for obey, and that's what a child does. And remember, while a child you obey, but for for the entire life you honor your father and your mother. Uh, verse 2 of Ephesians 6, the first commandment with promise, and that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And we also discuss that that honor is, is uh, oftentimes money and other, other things that may inconvenience you as your parents grow older so, and so forth. Ye fathers, now we come to verse 4, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but, and this is but instead, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now there's many of this here, uh, many who would say, well, what's this provocation to wrath? This has to do uh, with uh, teasing your children or putting putting difficult uh, work upon them, so forth. Nonsense. That's not what this is about. Uh, you, uh, One of the things that uh, we're seeing with our children is that we don't challenge them enough. We don't put enough uh, work upon them. I'm not worried about your child's self-image. I'm worried about uh, whether you will bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, it's not that he, he's made and she is. Uh, your children are made in the image of God, so their self-image has already been taken care of. They're made in the image and likeness of God. And uh, what's really important here is instead of provoking your children to wrath, that is, instead of promoting wrath for your children, which has to do with their own anger and, by the way, the wrath of God, the wrath of Satan, and the wrath of man, all which are visited on people because they're not submissive to the commands and, and nurturing and admonition of the Lord. Instead of doing that, which will come quite naturally to you, nurture and admonish them in the Lord. Now, this nurturing, notice it has to do with a father. When, when we think of nurturing, uh, I think a lot of times we just talk about a mother and she has an instinct to nurture and so forth. Well, this word, this word nurture is the word for discipline. And it says here, you fathers, uh, bring your children up in the discipline and the admonition. Now, this admonition has to do with a, a regular and a continuous warning and an advisement according to the scriptures. This is something that we have to give ourselves to. It's not something that comes to us easily, naturally, anything like that. This is something, again, fathers, where are you going to get the discipline of the Lord? 
where are you going to get the admonition of the Lord? You're going to have to get it from the Word of God. And so here again, uh, brother, you're pointed to the Word of God. Now, I know as a, as a father uh, that it, it, the impending responsibility of that task comes upon us every day. It uh, comes upon us as a, as a daunting task. It's especially daunting when we look back and see ourselves as sons and realize that we don't pay very good attention to our fathers oftentimes. Uh, there, this is now fraught with great jeopardy, but it is also imbued with great grace. And this is part of all things that God gives to us that pertain to life and godliness. The admonition and the discipline that your child needs in the Lord, God will grace you to impart to him. So don't, be, don't lack confidence in this thing. Don't be daunted by the task. Of course, that's not really our problem. Our problem is we won't give ourselves to it. Uh, but here, here, so fathers are now admonished to admonish their children and to bring them and to nurture them or to discipline them, uh, to bring them up in the discipline and in the admonishment of the Lord. And it's going to be very difficult for you to conscientiously properly admonish your family brother if you are not being properly admonished yourself by the Lord. And we can help one another in this. Uh, us, uh, we fathers need to band together as brothers and uh, encourage each other and admonish one another, right? Teaching and admonishing one another. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's what it means to let the Word of God dwell in us richly with all wisdom and understanding is that we are being admonished and we are admonishing one another. And so the admonishment of our children uh, then comes to us uh, as part of our normal, regular, Spirit-led Christian life. I can't uh, emphasize that enough because it is a father's responsibility, Christian father's responsibility, to bring his entire family to Christ. And by the way, God will give you grace in that regard to do the best that you can. Now we have verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Now, I know that we can take this scripture and try to apply it to the employee-employer relationship, but I think before we do that application, we need to see how very different this is than that. A servant here, this is the word for a bondservant. We do not have bondservants in our society in America. As far as I know, there are not bondservants in European society. So this is a term uh, that Christianity has, uh, over the course of many years, has even outlawed in most Christianized countries, if not all Christianized countries. And that is the notion of a bondservant or an indentured servant. The, these are not, uh, that, this is a bill of attainder, it's illegal in America. We are all free men in America, and uh, in many places of the world, uh, people are all free men, and they're not bond servants. They're not sold, they do not sell themselves under bond to be the servant of men. Now, at the beginning of our country, we did have indentured servants, and they would sell themselves as on, under an indenture for a period of up to seven years to pay for their passage to America. I understand that in the Chinese culture, uh, there is some of that indenture as, pe as Chinese people migrate uh, from China to America. They form some kind of a bond service that they have to uh, uh, take care of when they get here. And I suppose that's all under the table and so forth, but I understand that that does happen. So when we talk about servants here in the scripture, this is a bond servant 
This is a man without rights in many ways. Uh, This is not a free man. The scripture says if you are called being a servant, as we find in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're found being a bondservant, don't think anything of that. You're the Lord's free man. But if you have the opportunity to get free, use that opportunity. So if you have the opportunity to pay off your bond and become a free man, then do that. Now, we are all free men. That is, we're not in bondage to our employers. Uh, We don't uh, sell ourselves into uh, bond service. We contract ourselves into agreeable service. So, so being a bond servant is more odious than being an employee. It is under. It is more odious. There is a heavier hand of authority upon us. We are less free. And yet, the Scripture admonishes the bond servant to be obedient to them who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. Verse five, Ephesians six. Uh, in singleness of heart as unto Christ. So in other words, look beyond your bond. Look beyond the fact that you're a bondservant. This is very similar to what a woman has to do with her husband. Look beyond the fact that this guy is your husband and he's telling you what to do. Just look unto the Lord and realize that the central issue of the universe is authority and that it's very important in God's sight for you to maintain these authorities as they're outlined to you in your life. And so here, uh, even a bondservant has said, be single-minded. That's called uh, singleness of your heart. That has to do with being uh, single-minded. It has to do with being free in your own mind, not with a bad conscience. It, it, It does signal a good conscience. Then it says, not with eye service as men pleasers. And there are so many today who are men-pleasers. They've learned to be men-pleasers. They serve with their eyes, but not with their heart. So when somebody's watching them, they serve well. And when the cat's away, the mice do play, and so forth. But as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So you can understand that if you're in that situation where you have no choice, where you're in bondage, these servants in bondage, they could serve uh, out of singleness of heart, knowing that God was over their circumstance, and they were free men in Christ in it. And then it says in verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he is bondman or free man. Now, here the bondman was able to look to his relationship and say, well, I'm in bondage. I can serve as unto the Lord. I don't have to worry about this condition of life. I can look past it, and I'll be rewarded by Christ for my faithfulness in my service to Him, even if I'm never rewarded properly for my service to my master. And, of course, there was no real prospect of the bondservant being rewarded properly uh, by his master. The bond was already set. The years of service were already set, and he was just doing time. Maybe this would be applicable if you're in prison. You're listening to this broadcast, and you have a little something to do there in prison. Uh, Look to the Lord. Uh, Don't worry about those men uh, that you serve. You're serving Christ, and uh, work out of a clear conscience. But it does not have to do with the exactly, and I want to make a distinction today, with the employer-employee relationship. Well, that's a contractual relationship, and as a free man, you if you don't uh, uh, work as unto the Lord in a contractual relationship, you are no better than a thief. 
and uh, neither am I if I do that. In fact, I remember one time I had a job that was so easy it gave me a bad conscience. Uh, the work was so thin and so little. Man, it was a third shift job for a major uh, corporation in America, and everybody was in a union, and fellows were sleeping at night, and I had received the Lord as my Savior, and I began to have a bad conscience about that kind of work, and I got myself out of it into a really lousy job. Uh, but at least I could work with a good conscience. If you are somebody's employee, and you're not working heartily as unto the Lord, if you're just putting your time in, uh, you're, an, that's an, you're an immoral person. And the scripture says, let him that steals, steal no longer. After all, you're free. You entered into that relationship. And of course, you ought to be grateful to God for the contractual business that you have. And that means with your employer. And uh, this, of course, is a much less severe uh, stress upon you. Quit grumbling and complaining. This is great grace of God. Listen, you're a free man, but that makes you the Lord's servant. And I think we should be admonished even more strongly as free men about our attitude and our conscience and our viewpoint to our work uh, so that we can become moral people. And let me tell you, brother, uh, demoralized is exactly the word, and we're in a demoralized society. Uh, you can't look to your peers for the standard. Once again, look to the Word of God and serve heartily. Whatever you do is unto the Lord. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone, and I'll be back in just a minute. Stay with us. Now we come to the ninth verse of Ephesians chapter 6 and the admonition of masters, and I'll talk a little bit about that, then we'll move along. And you masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Now here, what this is telling us is that masters are also servants. It tells us, of course, the scripture teaches us that servants are free men to God, and free men here are servants of God. And when it says here, uh, uh, masters, you masters do the same things, in verse 9, uh, it just literally says, you masters also, uh, you need to look at your responsibilities under the scripture to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to do what you're doing heartily is unto the Lord. Now, here again, uh, we don't have in our society, in American society, and in most societies, we do not have a servant class. We don't have a bondservant class of people. But we do have those who are in our employ and who depend upon us and whose uh, whose services we uh, we regularly are able to purchase, and we do have uh, those of us who are certainly more economically and financial able, and that has something to do here with this. Ye masters uh, do the same thing, and it says now forbearing, threatening, or refraining from threatening. And I know that uh, sometimes you feel like there's nothing more you can do. I have experience of being an employer. I've had a few employees and I've had many employees and uh, I know that there's a frustration of uh, uh, that, that that happens and again here I'm talking about employees uh, which is a contractual relationship but there is a frustration that the agenda that you have set and the course that you've taken is not being done and it's not because uh, it can't be done but it is because at least according to your the best view that you have uh, you're not getting a proper labor out of your employees. Now, the 
the frustrating part, uh, the frustration sometimes builds. You don't do anything about it. You don't know what to do about it. And the frustration builds to where you start putting out threats. Well, let me say that in the Lord. Now, these are talking about relationships that are in the Lord, by the way. But when you begin to threaten a brother or whatever, uh, immediately uh, you may cause that brother to uh, be disheartened and discouraged and not and to not be able to look past you to the Lord. Uh, you'll make it. You'll make yourself so obvious as a person to please that he can't work heartily as unto the Lord because he has to look out for you because you've become a threat to him. Now that's one thing that no employer should become a threat uh, to his people, and no brother should become a threat to some other brother. Now, let's just put it that way. Let's take this out of uh, the mere context of the workplace. We segment our lives such. In our society, the world has gotten to us so much that we have secularized and compartmentalized our life. But you should never be bringing yourself to another brother as a threat so that he can no longer look to the Lord, but he's busy looking out for you. And so here, of course, uh, the scripture says, forbear threatening because threats immediately come to our mind. And I think, by the way, forbearing threatening is something that you can do also with your children. It doesn't say that here, but I've never found it especially effective to threaten the children. It's more effective with a child. Yes, you give them a warning sometimes, but it's just more effective with a child to discipline him, get that over with, and go on and leave the results to the Lord. Well, here it says now, uh, uh, forbear threatening. Uh, that's because here it gives us the reason. Knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. And brother, uh, maybe you are financially advantaged, and uh, you'll know, you know it if you are. Most of us in America, for example, are financially advantaged. Uh, we, we need to remember that the Lord isn't threatening us every day. Oh, maybe you think the Lord is threatening you with utter financial ruin every day, but he's not. The grace of this life has been visited to you uh, so that you have been enabled to do some things, and you don't want the Lord to be threatening you every day. So you think about that, and you don't be a threat to your employees or to those people, let's just say, who are depending totally upon you. And sometimes, even as free men, we get into such relationships that they're not equal in power whatsoever. And when you're on the power side of that relationship, uh, don't take to threatening. Uh, remember that you can be you are on the other side of that equation with the Lord and conduct yourself accordingly. Well, of course, now here instruction is given to brethren in their work relationships or in their living relationships. And why is that? Because the Bible anticipates that our relationships will encompass uh, these matters. And it's a wonderful thing for brethren to work together. It's a wonderful thing for brethren to dwell together in unity. And we ought not have an aversion to employing brethren, to doing business with brethren. In fact, we ought to be embrace this, even though it presents us with difficult relationships and uh, trials of life. Uh, these are the very trials wherein we're tested that if we endure the temptation and we pass the test, later when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll receive a crown of glory for having endured 
and having won in these relationships, having won a spiritual battle in these relationships. Remember that it's a spiritual battle, and of course that's what comes on here uh, in the rest of Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10, we'll just read for a while here now this next section. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor, or the panoply, of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against wicked spirits in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and that's today, the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now we have here quite a section. This is the most militant section, military section of uh, the scriptures, and it lays out for us the spiritual war in some vast detail. It lays out for us in a little bit of detail uh, what, where our, who our enemies are and where they are. And the other thing it lays out for us is exactly what our defensive protections are and what our offensive weapons are. So we do well to examine this passage of Scripture and let it impact us. So finally, my brethren, he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Now remember that the apostle says in the epistle of the Philippians that he considers his all of his resume, all of his past life, rubbish so that he might win Christ and know the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection being made conformable to him and to his death. Now, here we find the Lord's power, the power of his might. And that is found in the context of enduring the sufferings. Now, when we talk about endurance, a lot of analogies can come to our mind. Certainly, sporting analogies come to our mind where we endure hardship, uh, as athletes do. But the fellows who really endure hardship and deprivation and whatever it takes to achieve their mission are soldiers. And so here we can find a section of what it is to be a Christian soldier. Now, I know the world takes this idea and applies it to world military conquests, schemes devised by, the, by papal Rome uh, historically, and world powers who use religion uh, as a means to their own ends. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we have a spiritual war in the heavenly places. The Bible says that we're to be strong in the power of the Lord's might, which is the power to endure the hatred of the world and the enmity of the world, and to endure the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, which is presented to each one of us. So here he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, uh, like the song says. And now it tells us, well, you say, well, how do I do that? Well, it gives us an exact uh, notion of how to do that. It says, put on the whole armor or the panoply of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes or the wiles of the devil. Now, a couple things are exposed here. First of all, 
uh, we're told that there is a panoply of God, that God has a full set of armor for us to wear. Uh, uh, he has provided for us, and of course this speaks of grace, God's provision, uh, whatever it is that we need, that's the grace of God. Uh, some have said uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay, fair enough, that's a nice little uh, anagram of uh, the word grace, uh, but grace is what we need, and when God, when God declares himself to be a man of war, and when he tells us that we war uh, not according to the flesh and not uh, against the flesh, but we have a spiritual war, then we can expect him in grace to provide us the weapons for that war and the defense needed for that war, and that is called here the panoply of God. And why are we to put it on? So that we'll stand against the schemes of the devil. And immediately we can infer that if we don't put on the panoply of God, we'll not stand against the devil's schemes. Well, and militarily, when you don't stand, you fall. And you fall for the devil's schemes or you fall in the devil's schemes. Now, so the first thing we see is that there is this panoply of God. The second thing that we see is a need to stand against something. And the third thing that we see, then, is the something to stand against. And these are now the stratagems of the devil, or the schemes of the devil. These are things that we're not supposed to be ignorant about. Uh, we're not supposed to be ignorant of the devices of Satan. And here Satan is seen to be a strategist. He has uh, strategies. We saw in the fourth chapter, for example, that we're no longer supposed to be children. We're supposed to be grown men. You don't send children to war. You send grown men to war. And in Ephesians 4, you remember, we saw that henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So you can see that those men, that there are men that do that. Now we're seeing that behind those men is the scheme of the devil and that we don't really wrestle those men. We wrestle the wicked spirits behind those men. We don't wrestle flesh and blood, as it says in verse 12 here, but against principalities, against powers. Now we have the two words, principalities and powers, that we found in Colossians, the second chapter, in the discussion of the Lord Jesus Christ's triumph in the cross. And this is where he triumphed in the cross over principalities and powers. And this now is the, the enemies that he defeated, and these are the enemies that we're to defeat. He made them an open show in his cross. He made an open show of his victory. It tells us in Colossians chapter 2, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is, in his cross. So here he exposed them, as it were, principalities and powers. He exposed them to a, a, a grand shame in the heavenly places. He made it evident in the heavens that they were shameful beings, hostile to himself, as he conquered them in the cross, and then he was crowned with glory and honor as a man above all principalities and powers. Now, the church, which is his body, is supposed to do the same thing. Well, we're reminded, for example, of David and his mighty men. David defeated Goliath, or Goliath, as he is also called. He defeated him and uh, slid his head off. 
and uh, triumphed over him and brought Goliath into public infamy. And thereafter, then, the children of Israel chased the Philistines. But later, Goliath's four brothers were defeated, each one by one of the mighty men of David. And so uh, we have a picture there of uh, one who is... uh, uh, we have a forward picture of our, graded David, our greater David who made an open show of his victory over the prince of darkness, Satan himself, and of course all principalities and powers. And now he wants to make an open show of the triumph over those same ones by the church, which is his body, whom he will divide the spoil with, uh, with those who are victors. And so the scripture says, if we endure with him, we will reign with him. And that's uh, in First Timothy. So now uh, that, that is part and parcel of this. If, if, if we will fight, uh, we will displace these principalities and powers. And we will also, as we go the way of the cross, we will also make uh, the open show of God's wisdom in the heavenly places as we wrestle uh, as we stand against the schemes of the devil or the strategies of the devil and then we wrestle against principalities against powers now what are these principalities and powers well they're the rulers of the darkness of this world they're wicked spirits in the, in, in heavenly places uh, in the in the highest heavens you say well how high well below the lord jesus christ uh, they don't seem to be up in the third heaven where the apostle paul was caught up uh, to hear things uh, that it wasn't lawful for him to, to, to see. But in the heavenly places below the highest heaven, uh, above this earth, are principalities and powers. They're the rulers of the darkness of this world. And they bring darkness into the world. And the church, which is his body, is supposed to bring light into this world. And so we have this marvelous conflict laid out here. And it says we wrestle, we don't wrestle against those who are targets and those who are moved about by the strategy and the tactics, the wiles of these wicked spirits. We look beyond what our eyes here below see, and with the eyes of our understanding, we realize that we're engaged in a monster of a conflict in the heavenly places. And when we see that that is who we are arrayed against, then we know we need to take unto ourselves the whole armor of God. And so it's repeated in verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor, or the panoply of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So first here, we have to withstand, and that talks about defensiveness here. We have to withstand the assault of the devil against us and his angels. And then, having withstood in the evil day, having done all, to stand. And uh, now, here we, uh, first of all, are defended, uh, and we have to have our defenses up, and then secondly, we need to take the offensive. And we'll look at that, and we'll see the running game of the church, which is his body, in just a minute. You're listening to BibleStudy.net, and I'm John Malone. Well, as we come to the end of the sixth chapter here, we're going to look briefly at this panoply of God. 
I think the emphasis here, by the way, is the need to take it up. And then once we are overwhelmed by the need and the knowledge that uh, we are in a spiritual battle and that we have to conduct ourselves in it, we'll know a little better how this uh, armor works and what these weapons are. I know we could spend a good profitable time looking at the armor and the weapons very well, but I think the emphasis at this time that I'd like to make is to get that armor on and to start using it. So let's have a look at it and and to understand, by the way, uh, that there is a spiritual war and that you're in it. Now, as a Christian, you don't have a choice of whether you're in the war or not. You only have a choice as to whether you're going to stand or you're going to lie down. You're in the war. uh, You've been recruited. And uh, the armor is available to you. You've been issued. That's what GI stands for, government issue. You've been issued, issued you, all your equipment by the uh, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, our commander-in-chief in heaven. He's issued uh, all these things for you and set them aside for you. Uh, you've got the panoply. It's available. The question is whether you're just going to sit around and be victimized by the wiles of the devil or whether you're going to withstand the attacks of the evil one and then stand whether you're going to do some defense and then play some offense. So here we have now, stand therefore, in verse 14, uh, having your loins girt about with truth, with truth or trueness. Now some say the truth, but we actually, we know the truth is this scripture, which is the word of God, and that is an offensive weapon which we'll come to. This has to do with trueness. Have your loins girt about with trueness or truth now your loins this is your strong part this is where you stand firm and you cannot stand firm with a bad conscience that's a fact you'll be thrown out you'll be disqualified from from spiritual war by having a bad conscience so have the loins and this speaks to the loins of your mind by the way this speaks to the strength of your mind and your determination and in order to be a determined spiritual person you have got to hold faith with a good conscience. I think very little effort today is being made to make sure that brothers and sisters stay inside their own conscience. You must stay inside your own conscience. That doesn't mean your conscience won't change. It will. The ministry of the Word of God will will form a new regenerate conscience within you and your conscience can be impacted by the word of god and your conscience can change things that you used to think were evil may become they may you may learn that they're not evil at all things that you that you thought weren't evil uh you learn they are evil so uh the important thing however is to stay inside your own conscience have your loins girt about with trueness trueness and that is true true trueness has to do with living inside of faith with a good conscience and then it says having on the breastplate of righteousness so first thing you've got your lower armor now you've got your upper armor Uh, guard your heart with all diligence uh, the scripture says for out of it come the issues of life well here is this now the breastplate of righteousness has to do with right living uh, this this has to do uh, with right living. Uh, it isn't merely about imputed righteousness, but it has to do with a with a forensic righteousness or a discoverable discoverable righteousness or a sense that you are on that you are doing uh, the right thing. And then it says your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of the peace. Now this will get you mobile. 
But notice that it doesn't say, uh, put on the gospel. You don't put on the gospel here. It says, have and your feet shod with the preparation of the good news of the peace. Well, what is that preparation? You must first know that there is the peace. And this is not just peace. This is not your peace. This is the peace which God has made. And by the way, in its highest and most disclosed form, uh, it, all, it includes the peace which Christ brought through the work of his cross, as we saw in the third chapter, the peace between Jew and Gentile. The peace that, God has, that Christ has worked. That God is no longer in enmity against the Gentile nations. That God is not in, currently in enmity against the world. But that God is patient and long-suffering, and that that's not what he's doing today. There's a, there's a day coming when the enmity of the world will reach to the highest heavens and God will close out this present dispensation which is marked by the church which is his body and when he does that uh, the world will be visited by the wrath of God that though God is angry with the wicked even today and every day God is not today exercising his wrath and judgment on man and that is by the way the good news and to and you need to be prepared to bring that good news and that's what it says now having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of the peace you need to be ready to bring the gospel you never know when your opportunity opens up and so uh, the enemy will try to make sure that when God does open an opportunity you're not ready so defend yourself against that and be prepared to bring the good news when the opportunity arises and God will see to it that the opportunity arises now it says above all take taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one now this this faith this has to do with faithfulness it has to do but this is the faith and it has to do with understanding that I'm going forward in the faith today it's not just that I'm going forward in my job it's not that I'm going forward on my vacation it's not that I'm going forward to the grocery store I am always going forward with the faith and now here of course the helmet talks about our head and has to do with our mind and the faith thinking on the faith meditating in the Word of God meditating and 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 being mindful of the faith is the only defense you have to the fiery darts here of the wicked one the fiery darts so it says take up the shield of faith uh, which you are able uh, to quench all the fiery darts of the, of the wicked this is now something movable this is a shield this is a movable thing uh, that when the fiery darts come uh, that you catch it with your shield so that your clothes don't start on fire and uh, boy once those fiery darts start up a fire you've got a big problem uh, instead of quenching them with a shield that's equipped to do that uh, you've got a big fire on your hands and it can certainly take you out of battle and disqualify you for the offense which is to come and finally verse 17 take the helmet of salvation uh, which by the way includes a knowledge that I have eternal life and that there is no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus so many soldiers today so many believers today walking around without that helmet they have salvation but they don't have the helmet of salvation they're saved but they doubt they're in doubt they they're unassured 
this helmet of salvation has to do with assurance uh, that protects our minds from the attacks of the enemy. Now, how does the enemy attack? Well, let me tell you, his name is Satan, and that word means accuser. So one of the main uh, efforts that he takes against us to take us out of battle is to accuse us and to bring to our mind our sins, our unworthiness, and all the other things, which, by the way, are quite true. But if we don't know the faith, if we don't have the assurance that Jesus Christ truly did take our sins uh, to the cross and that we truly have forgiveness and we truly have eternal life and that we're sealed in him, the Holy Spirit of promise, and that we're assured a resurrection from the dead, how is it that we can face uh, these great, uh, this great enmity against us? So that's verse 17. Uh, and now we see in the middle, uh, in the end of verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And now we come to an offensive weapon. We have the, the two offensive weapons given here, the Word of God as our sword, Okay, so the Word of God is also our shield. The Word of God is also involved in our, as our helmet. After all, we are saved. Uh, uh, the way that we are saved is by faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Of course, the preparation of the gospel. The gospel is by the Word of God. Uh, the breastplate uh, is trueness. Of course, our conscience is formed uh, by trueness for our loins girt. The breastplate of righteousness uh, a rightness, a right conduct, that's formulated by the Word of God. The Word of God formulating all of these things for us. Also now, here it says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the sword of the Spirit, the Spirit's sword, is the application of the Word of God. It doesn't say here the Bible. It says the Word of God. And so this has to do with a fitted word or the right word in the right time for the right person. And the Spirit of God will bring that word to your mind at the right time in the right place if you have done your homework enough to at least get the word of God in there. To let the, and now this, has, this corresponds to letting the word of God dwell in you richly with all wisdom and understanding so that now having done all to withstand the schemes of the devil, you are now standing and fighting. And you're not fighting, of course, flesh and blood, but you're fighting wicked spirits. You're taking down strongholds in the minds of men, which wicked spirits work uh, to, so that they won't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here now you have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which we, are, we should be skilled to wield. And no swordsman uh, picks up the sword for the first time and is effective. Uh, we we are to use the sword. Uh, we are to use the sword of the Spirit regularly. The Word of God is able to make us wiser than all of our teachers if we'll pay attention to it. And it is a tremendous weapon in the minds of men. It is called the dynamite of God in Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Gentile. It is dynamite. It is a sword. It is an effective spiritual weapon in the hearts and minds, against wicked spirits, in the battle for the hearts and minds of men. Now we have another offensive weapon, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, Praying in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. You say, how do you pray? Well, you pray with prayers. Those are petitions. And supplication. 
this is for this is now for what we need uh, uh we we pray prayers because we have a cause and we issue our cause before the lord and then we uh, supplicate for our needs and uh, so here we pray with prayers and supplications in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints so you say well i don't have anything that i need i god has met all my needs well pray for others they have needs and uh, pray for the causes of others you say well i'm not out there on the front line uh, i don't i'm just all by myself i'm watching my kids i don't have uh any uh buddy to talk to here or to bring uh, uh to to defeat the enemy's work in the hearts and minds of men well that's right you're still in the battle sister brother whoever uh you're still in the battle pray for others who do have such opportunities at such times and by the way pray for those opportunities now the apostle says and he includes himself just so that you know uh that this is what he's talking about he says pray for uh, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me that utterance may be given unto me that i would open my mouth with boldness to make known the mystery of the gospel now a friend of mine i don't mind uh, just just gravy training on here with the Apostle Paul. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. I hope this is an encouraging time to you. Would you pray for me that utterance would be given unto me, that I would open my mouth boldly? I'll just gravy train with the Apostle here and say, I covet those same prayers. It looks to me like I can follow his example and just ask for those prayers. You know, we don't ask for very much on BibleStudy.net. Uh, we certainly don't do fundraising, and we're not about to. But hey, I'll shamelessly ask for your prayers and that we would have boldness uh, to bring out the Word of God. Uh, we have opportunity, but we don't always have boldness. And so uh, here the apostle prays for great freedom of speech, and uh, me too. For I, uh, which I am an ambassador, the apostle says, in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Of course, the apostle, in very dire straits here, uh, he's in bonds. Uh, his word, any word could uh, be the end of his life at any time. Uh, I think sometimes the apostle had the advantage of knowing that he was in that kind of danger. Some of us think we're not in, the, we're not in danger, uh, and yet we very well may be. Uh, but notice here, once again, the overwhelming cause for prayer in the New Testament is not praying for healing, and it's not praying for financial success, but it is praying for boldness. The early church in the book of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and so forth, you'll see that they prayed that they would have boldness. And, uh, you know, maybe you think that somebody gets on the radio, he's automatically bold. Maybe you think the apostle was always bold. That's just the kind of guy he was. Not so at all. This boldness has to do with getting free expression of the truth in the way that God wants it to be said. We are able but sometimes we lack power and other times we lack the internal freedom here called boldness uh, to speak that way and uh, the apostle never assumed that though he had served the lord for many years that he had boldness he knew he always lacked it and that he always needed it and he asked for the believers uh, to pray that he'd have it uh, now he just finishes here with this uh, at the end here of uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll just read it. We won't say much about it. Verse 21, But that you also may know my affairs, and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, and so we assume that he carried this letter, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that you might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. 
Peace be to the brethren, and love, with faith, from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And of course, it's the grace of God that we need. Uh, Brothers and sisters, may God bless your meditation in His Word. You've been listening to BibleStudy.net, and me, I'm John Malone.